Good evening, and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. Every week I have this wonderful privilege to join you to take some time to talk about Scripture. And I'm just a host, though. I invite some friends to join me and to pick verses that they particularly like. In this case, uh, for the season, we've been asking the guests to choose verses that have helped them discern their call to follow Jesus Christ, inspired them to follow him more deeply. Uh, For some, it was bringing them from a nominal faith into a deeper faith. For some of them, it was calling them into a vocation, uh, priesthood, uh, religious life. Others, it was actually calling them into the Catholic Church to follow Christ more deeply. That's exactly why on the Journey Home program or this program, we talk about uh, coming home, and that's following our Lord fully. We say, you know, Jesus, wherever you want me to go, I'll go. And sometimes he takes us to places we didn't expect. And our guest tonight is a convert to the church, Mark Brumley. He is the president CEO of Ignatius Press, and uh, uh, he's an author of a number of books. You can see this on our website, deepinscripture.com. He's the author of How Not to Share Your Faith by Catholic Answers and editor of the Jesus of Nazareth Study Guide, Ignatius Press. He's a member, Board of Trustees of Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology in Berkeley, California. And he's written many, many articles, uh, including uh, many that appear frequently on Ignatius Insight. And if you go to deepinscripture.com, our website that connects with this radio program, at the very top, there's a link to watch this program live. And... And then below that, there's a link that will go to Ignatius Insight, and you can see all the different fine articles, blogs and such, that are on that, uh, that website, including articles by Mark. If you're interested in contacting us during this program, please call us. The phone number that's posted on the website is 800-664-5110, or you can call us a uh, regular phone number for the Coming Home Network International, 740-450-1175. Or you can send me an email, marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, at deepinscripture.com. And uh, if you call, we'll write down your question and, and put you on the put your question on the air. If you write us an email, if we have time, we'll try and get it in. We'd really love to hear your thoughts about what we're discussing on our program tonight. Now, Mark chose as his verse... Uh, a great verse. Uh, it's one of those beautiful, uh, some call it an early Christian hymn. And the beauty of it is it, it takes our theology about Jesus and following him and sets before us this wonderful challenge, the model that we are to follow. But it isn't just at, with Christ as a model it is his sacrifice that he willingly took upon himself when he uh, accepted the incarnation, following uh, the will of the Father. And so let me read this text, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and then I'll take a brief break, and Mark Brumley will join us after the break. So this is Paul writing to the Philippians Chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our 7th Annual Deep in History Conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year we will begin on the rock looking to understand the question of authority, the pillar and bulwark of truth. Join us the weekend of October 23rd as we bring together another exciting list of speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, and I'm coming to you from the Coming Home Network International offices in uh, Central Ohio. And uh, and I'm welcome to the program, Mark Brumley. Are you there, Mark? I am here. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing fine, where, Marcus. Where are we talking to you from? You are talking to me. Uh, I am in Napa, California, which is where I live, just about an hour north of San Francisco which is where I work at Ignatius Press. And you're surrounded by grapes, right? Surrounded by grapes, and we're getting ready for the harvest. So <laughs> That's right. I mean, whenever we think of Napa, that's what we think, at least out in this part of the world. That's, that's the main thing I know about Napa, California. It's a place uh, of very, very fine wine. All right. Now, Mark, tell the audience, they may not be familiar with Ignatius Press and Ignatius Insight. Why don't, before we jump into the discussion, tell them a little bit about both. Sure. Ignatius Press was founded well, let's see, over well over 30 years ago uh, by Father Joseph Fessio, S.J., who mm-hmm. uh, it remains the editor of Ignatius Press, and uh, he was studying in Europe, uh, studying theology, studying under a professor, Joseph Ratzinger, <laughs> and uh, he came back to Father Fessio came back to the United States, and he tells the story of. You know, how when he went over to Europe, he didn't drink beer. When he came back, he did, and he tried an American beer. And compared to the fine German beers he was used to, I'm not trying to diss American beer here. He said, (laughs) you know, this isn't beer. And when he sort of surveyed what was going on in theology in the 70s at the time, he had a similar reaction by saying, this isn't theology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and having studied under Ratzinger and under Henri de Lubac, one of the great uh, theologians of the 20th century, he decided he was going to bring into English uh, some of these great works of these European giants of theology. And so that was 
through the genesis of Ignatius Press. And of course, since then we've expanded to oh, yeah. not just highfalutin theology, but popular books and uh, Bible Bibles. We have our own edition of the Bible, the Ignatius Bible, which is the Revised Standard Version, Second Catholic Edition. Uh, and uh, we do films and videos and all kinds of things like that. So that's Ignatius Press. And Ignatius Insight is a, a website that we created, not just to certainly to tell people about what's going on with Ignatius Press, its books, its authors, and things of that sort, but also through Carl Olson, who's the editor, who's also a convert mm-hmm. and one of our authors, to kind of keep an eye on what's going on in, in the world at large and, and scrutinize things from a Catholic perspective and bringing Ignatius Press authors and, and, and works to bear and uh, assessing where things are at in the world and where the, where the church is going. Yeah, well, it's a fine uh, website, and I encourage the anyone listening uh, to go to it and see all the, the great connections there. And I would also uh, strongly encourage the audience, if you haven't read a book published by Ignatius Press, the one thing that I that I am glad to know about publishers like Ignatius Press is that I can recommend any book from Ignatius Press because I know it's faithful to the church. It's faithful to the truth. Uh, Especially not... that author, Benedict XVI. You know? Oh, that's right. Of course. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a coup, getting a, <laughs> getting him signed up before you knew. Or did you know? <laughs> no, we, we actually didn't get him signed up before. We were the ones who were responsible for getting him elected pope. Oh, there you go. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you got the world to know Ratzinger better than he would have. There you go. All right. Now, you chose as your passage, a great passage, as I mentioned, uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Uh, I imagine it's one of those passages that that almost anyone that's been a regular churchgoer for most of their life will have heard many times. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but in general, why did you choose this passage? Um, I think the passage epitomizes what is at the heart of the gospel message, which is how, uh, first of all, that we as Christians are disciples of Jesus, and so we have to look to Jesus as the model, paradigm, for what, is it, for what it means to live life. That's the first point. And then the second point, when we do that, we look at this text of Scripture, we really see the whole, uh, to use the fancy jargon, the whole economy of salvation. Uh, God coming from God, becoming one of us, not just becoming one of us, but humbling himself even further to become a criminal, essentially. He doesn't become a criminal, but he suffers the fate of a criminal on the cross and all the suffering that goes with that. And then the exaltation and the resurrection and the glorification of the Son. So I like it because of those two things. Yeah. First, it shows me what uh, it calls me to keep my mind and my heart focused on Christ Jesus. And then second, it gives me the whole pattern of the mystery of the Incarnation and what that's about. And it, it's a, a full of theology. Yes. I mean, this passage, uh, I mean, literally, we could spend a, a semester at college yeah. uh, studying this passage because there'll be one word, and that will lead to a lecture that will <laughs> deal with, you know, like the idea of, you know, Jesus emptied himself. Yes. Well, wait a second. And, and if it's not interpreted correctly, 
within the sacred tradition, it can easily lead into heresies, which it has. It has, oh yeah. So <laughs> there's a lot in this passage that uh, needs to be taken within the context of the entire rule of faith as the, the church teaches us. So, well, let's, let's start then at the beginning and dig into this passage. Um, and what struck me as I was reading it again, and I must say I've preached on this as a Protestant minister many times, it's been a number of years since I was in the Protestant pulpit, but it struck me uh, in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that there's an element of that, Mark, that on the one hand is an exhortation, but there's also an element of that which is stating something that's a fact about being in Jesus. You see what I'm saying? There's, there, Absolutely. Yeah, talk about that if you would. There's something which we're called to do, but something also to recognize. That's true. Well, there's always this uh, play between uh, what we are and where we are by virtue of our, to use the, the theological jargon, the incorporation into Christ by being united with Christ. The unity that comes to us, the unity we have with Christ through baptism, our faith in Christ, through uh, just, just the ordinary element of the Christian life. You have this union with Christ, and so insofar as to be a Christian is to have, at least at that fundamental level, a union with Christ, there's a union with, with the mind of Christ. So that's the, that's the given. But that's something that we always need to grow in and deepen and become more fully uh, embody a fuller embodiment of Christ in the world, and and so that means deepening our faith, because by a deeper faith we come to possess more fully the mind of Christ, deepening our hope and our trust in God, uh, and deepening our love of God, and and in that way we conform our lives to Christ. We become more Christ-like and how we live, so that Christ lives in us, to echo uh, another Pauline passage. So there's that already given that is ours simply by virtue of being Christians, being incorporated into the body of Christ, having received the life of grace, the life of the Holy Spirit living in us, but also the need to deepen and grow in that. So I think we see those two elements at play here in with Paul's exhortation, his acknowledgement of a present existing reality and his exhortation to go deeper. And this, 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 this idea of, of this mind of Christ that we already have, of course, is something that we continue to grow for the rest of our life. We can go backwards and forwards. You know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure whether uh, Ignatius Press has ever published anything by Father Gary Lagrange. Have you? I think you have, right? Uh, you know, I don't think we have. Okay, I mean, he's a. But I'm very much familiar with him. Oh yeah, and he's of course one of John Paul's teachers, and but he makes this idea about uh, you know in the ways of God, he does not progress, loses ground, and so you're always in this need to be moving forward. But this, this having the mind of Christ is, is really a work of grace, uh, you know, and so the the exhortation is to act on that which has already acted on us uh, right. to utilize this grace. I, trying to grab a, another verse in my mind and I'm just not finding it. I don't know what's wrong with me tonight, but that 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 section and uh, I thought it was in Ephesians, it might be in where it's telling us to to 
to think on these things. And it makes a long list of the things that we must focus on. And there is, you know, having this mind, he's listing all these virtues and that we are to try and focus on as opposed to the, the other values that our, our world puts before us to follow. And so it's, it's a focusing, a focusing of our mind. And as you said, the focus in this passage is on what Jesus has done to model for us uh, this living out of this, this beautiful faith that we have. I think what you're thinking of, the, the passage you were alluding to, is actually in the same book. If you go to uh, the fourth chapter of, of, of uh, Philippians, um, let me see if I can find it here. Yeah, I'm looking in my um, my little Ignatius Catholic Study Bible booklet <laughs> here, and we have, um, uh, let me see if I can find the passage here. Um, oh. um you know, and that's where I was thinking. And, verse, uh, verse 8, yeah. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, yes. whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Yes. And then what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, do, and the peace of God will be with you. Uh, we're, obviously, we're not here to... Uh, take this passage apart, but it is noteworthy that Paul puts himself out as an example. Uh, and sometimes I know with, and, and you know this from your, your history, um, some of our non-Catholic Christian brethren will get upset with us because we look to the example of the saints, and they'll say, well, you yeah. should be looking at Jesus, shouldn't be looking at the saints. Um, but that's a kind of a very... Um, truncated way of looking at Jesus, because Jesus himself associated himself with his church, and with the, the men and women who were deep lovers of him. And uh, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this passage, calls us to look to his example of what he's doing. Uh, and so it's perfectly legitimate for us to look to the example of holy men and women as they emulate Jesus, and as we aspire to emulate Jesus more fully, so that our light shines before men and they can give Glory to God the Father, in the, in the person of His Son, as His Son is made manifest in our lives. That's so a very important idea there. And this is the foundation for authentic Christian unity. Yes. Is being of one mind. And Paul is, in the passage you just quoted, is, is setting uh, virtues and qualities before us that we are to emulate and aim for. In the passage we're looking at, you know, he's holding up Jesus. But just a few verses before, in verse 2, chapter 2 of Philippians, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So in yep. other words, just as you said, we're to imitate Paul, but it's not merely external. We are to be guided by the grace to be thinking like Jesus, and he's going to show us how. And that's how, as a church, we are to be united uh, in that, if we are trying, seeking to be of one mind, which means not trying to convince everybody to agree with me. You know, that's what often happens in all those broken schismatic churches, but rather we are to seek to uh, emulate Christ, and particularly as we see it fleshed out in Paul. But now this passage, though, that you chose, it's, it's still not just looking at Paul, but looking directly at Jesus. Right. And verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Talk about that. 
<laughs> there's a lot there. Yeah, uh, yeah. And we have to be honest that this is a much controverted passage. Certainly, there's controversy between uh, different, uh, what we might say, those who are kind of more in keeping with the mainstream of the Christian tradition of understanding the Scripture, and those who, who depart radically from that, those who will say affirm the full divinity of Christ, uh, and those who challenge it. There's a, there's a difference there, and we'll look at that in a moment. But there's also a difference, even among um, Christians who fully embrace uh, the biblical teaching, we'd say the Catholic teaching, of the Trinity and of the divinity of Christ, there, there are differences. Mm-hmm. And I want to break this down into those differences among differences in interpretation that are probably they're within the gambit of legitimate differences of Catholic opinion right. and those that are not. And I want to say that, you know, the uh, for, first of all, when the passage here refer, in Paul refers in verse 6 to Jesus being in the form of God, okay, uh, we understand that to mean that he possesses the divine nature. Mm-hmm. Jesus was in the form of God from the very beginning, before the incarnation, before even before the creation of the world. He was in the form of God. He was divine. Okay. Now there were some Christ, some some people, some groups, some sects who deny the divinity of, of Christ, claim to be followers of Christ, but yet they didn't de- deny his divinity. And they have a hard time with this verse. <laughs> yeah, you, can, well, you can imagine. Yeah. Because what are you going to do with it when it says he was in the form of God? Some people will say, well, that means he was the image of God. Back in Genesis, Adam and Eve created in the image of God. Man is said to be the image of God and so on. So they were essentially trying to just say he was just a man. Just trying to say he was a human being, just saying he was a man. Of course, the problem with that is Paul is perfectly capable of using the language of the image of God with respect to Christ. He does so in the first chapter of Colossians. He uses a different word. In fact, he uses the word from which we get the word icon. He uses the word acon. Here, he's using the word morphe, and it means, you know, obviously God doesn't have a body, but using metaphorical language, it's saying that he was the embodiment of God. He was the form, the essence, the very stuff of God. And we know that, because what does Paul go on to do later on? We're going to see he contrasts Jesus being in the form of God with him later also taking on the form of a servant. A servant in verse 7, yes. Yeah, and people would not say, the people who deny the divinity of Christ on the basis of this where they say, well, he's the image of God, not the form of God, or that the form of God means he was just the image of God, he's just a human being. They wouldn't say, well, he's just an image of a servant. They'd say, no, he was really a servant. The form of a servant that he took was who and what he was. And so we're going to say, well, by that reasoning then, the form of God here is not just an image of God, such as he represents God, although obviously in Jesus' human nature, and the human nature, you know, sort of a, a way of representing God among us, but he is God. He has the fullness of the divine nature, as Paul also says in uh, Colossians chapter 2. So. That's one thing we want to say right at the outset. This verse makes clear the divinity of Jesus Christ, that he's God, he's divine, he possesses the full divine essence 
and does so by using this language of the form of God. And let me just say there that um, what you also pointed out so clearly is that this verse, without the guidance of the church, without the protection of sacred tradition, historically led to, or at least fed, many of the early heresies who were trying to understand that on their own. Right. In essence, a, a, a form of, of uh, primitive sola scriptura, right. and, uh, which is probably the reason, and I, I wish I was more uh, attuned to this uh, in terms of the, uh, uh, the actual history of the early council and why uh, these different uh, phrases came into the Nicene Creed. But the Nicene Creed specifically added on to the Apostles' Creed phrases that weren't there originally in the earlier creed right. when they said, God from God. Light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. That's right. All of this was around dealing with those that were taking verses like this and making them say things that were contrary to the tradition. Oh, absolutely. And, and that really brings up two points that we should always bear in mind uh, with respect to the biblical text. Uh, the teaching ministry of the church, the teaching authority of the church, the magisterium, has there are two aspects of its work that are very important that come to mind when you when you look at difficult biblical texts. First time, first first of all, sometimes a text is difficult in itself. I mean, you can line up a row of scholars, and yeah. they will go at it and try to say, "What does this text mean?" And it's the instance where the text is difficult in itself, mm-hmm. and the church is helpful there uh, in dealing with texts that are difficult in themselves. But sometimes there are texts that aren't really that difficult, necessarily. Uh, But for whatever reason, people disagree about the meaning of the text. It can be that they bring a prejudice to their interpretation of the text, or they've they've got a particular agenda, and so they're just simply not reading the text for what it says. In both instances, this ministry of the Church, this teaching office of the Church, is very valuable. Because as you said it just a few moments ago, Marcus, Paul emphasizes that we are to be of one accord, of one mind, having you know unity in the truth. And when a text is difficult to understand, people coming up with their own different interpretations, that unity of the truth is threatened. There's the ministry of the church that comes in and helps maintain it. But even when the text isn't that difficult, you still have people sometimes, for whatever reasons, coming up with interpretations that are different from what the text is saying, even when it's not that difficult to understand the text. And the unity of the Christian community is still threatened. It's threatened because people sometimes follow, people say, well, you know, I'm not a biblical scholar, but I like, you know, pastor so-and-so or brother such-and-such, his interpretation, so I'm going to follow his interpretation. And pretty soon uh, you've got people following interpretations of the Bible that are not that uh, that are pretty obviously wrong, or at least uh, they're not. The text isn't that difficult, and you've got division among the followers of Christ. And so that second function of that teaching authority to maintain unity, even when the text isn't necessarily that difficult, because the church, the pastors of the church, have the authority from Christ to say what the text means, even when the text's meaning isn't that difficult. It's still, they have the authority to say, here's what it means, 
and the unity of the, of the, of the community is preserved because people who really truly want to follow Christ, want to follow the pastors that he's appointed, are going to say, well, you know, I, I, Brother so-and-so may think it means something different, but he doesn't have the, the authority to say for the community what this text means, and so therefore I'm not going to follow his interpretation. I'm going to follow that of the, the teaching authority of the Church. And so that's this is an example of the text. I think that I think the meaning here is pretty straightforward. But somebody may say, well, it's con- it's controverted on this point. And I will say, well, even if it is, we still have an authoritative teacher who can come in and say, settle for the community what this text is about. Yeah, on an issue like baptism, which uh, uh, we're very divided on amongst Christ, uh, Christendom. Yep. and whether it's necessary or not. And what you often will find is one group of people will grab one verse out of Acts where a person came into the community without baptism being mentioned, and another group will grab another verse that they were, it's, it's essential, and ignoring each other's verse, they'll come up with two different theologies. And so you need the teacher to make sure that we're looking at the whole context and not you know, reading into it our own perspective. We're going to take another break, Mark, and we come back. There's another part of that verse we just looked at uh, that has to do with his grasping (laughs) the equality with God. And we'll look at what that means both for Jesus as well as ourselves in a moment. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined this evening by Mark Brumley. And you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on Life on the Rock. When we speak of apologetics, we're not talking about apologizing for the church, but of giving answer to objections raised against the faith. Tune in when Carlo Broussard joins Doug and Father Mark to talk about apologetics. That's on the next Life on the Rock, only on EWTN. Life on the Rock is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. Before we get into our discussion, Mark, I, I'll just remember, uh, remind the audience of the phone number and email in case you'd like to call us with a question. It's 800 664 5110 or 740-450-1175 or you can send me an email at marcus at deepinscripture.com. All right, Mark, we we left off right in the middle of a verse uh, in which we dealt with the fact that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, with God a thing to be grasped. Yes. Um, This is, again, another one of these very difficult texts. And I want to say that um, my, I, I like the RSV translation of the Bible in general. I think in this this particular uh, passage, it's not as clear as it could be. Now, I think I'm going to give you two or three different 
translations here that are in keeping with the church's understanding of this passage. And these different translations kind of get at different points, but the underlying point is, is pretty consistent. The image here is that Jesus is in the form of God. And in the form of God, that is not he he is not in a in a position of needing to grasp divinity or to claim divinity for himself. Um, the word that's used here is grasp. Another translate an older translate another translation is uh, to the effect that um, I'm, read, I'm trying to read the passage here in uh, in the original text here. Uh, the notion of uh, he didn't try to rob God of anything, he try to take anything from God. That's one meaning. But I think probably the consensus now of scholars have looked at this text very carefully. Consensus is probably the wrong word. The, probably the dominant way of looking at this text among scholars is the notion that he didn't exploit his equality with God. And that's the meaning that probably makes the best sense out of the passage. That Jesus is in the form of God. In other words, he's equal with God. But he did not deem or count his equality with God as something to be exploited. Uh, you could think of that as to be clutched to himself or grasped or held on to for his own benefit. Okay. But emptied himself, not of his divinity, but of all that is associated with we could say the divine prerogatives, all that is associated with being God, uh, all the prerogatives that come with being divine. So Jesus is in the form of God. Do not think his equality with God was something that uh, uh, he was going to uh, exploit to his own advantage. Uh, instead, he emptied himself of all the advantage or prerogative that comes with being divine, and takes the form of a servant doesn't mean he just appears to be a servant meaning he, it means he actually was a servant and that servant status verse the next verse um, mm -hmm. the next part of verse 8 makes clear comes with being born in the likeness of men becoming a human being we'll say in refined theological language uniting with himself a human nature so the whole of the passage is, on the one hand, affirming the divinity of Jesus, talking about what he is, mm -hmm. affirming that he didn't regard that divinity as something to be used sort of to his own advantage, quite the reverse. He humbles himself. He takes the form of a servant, and that means he becomes one of us. He becomes a human being in the incarnation. The uh, That word emptied himself you yes. know that one uh again could be a long long discussion because it certainly throughout the ages has led to uh, you know some heret heretical understandings right. of exactly what he emptied himself of right. um and did, you know was he no longer god or was it just the fact that he was no longer omnipresent we we know for certain that the kenosis that took place does not mean, and the word the emptying, there's the word kenosis. Mm -hmm. We know that it, whatever else it means, or whatever else it doesn't mean, we know for certain that it doesn't mean that Jesus ceased to be 
God, because God can't cease to be God. <laughs> it's in the nature of it's in the nature of divinity that you can't cease being divine. So that's we know that uh, beyond dispute. Now, of course, there'll be different uh, interpretations, and we we kind of mentioned this earlier. There are those that are within the pale of orthodoxy and those that are outside. And some of those that are outside will say things like, well, Jesus gave up his divinity, or Jesus gave up um, uh, some aspect of his divinity, some aspect of his divine nature. We'll say, for example, Jesus was no longer omniscient. We have to be very careful here, because while it's true to say that in Jesus' human nature, he wasn't omniscient. His human natures are by definition limited. Mm-hmm. We're not we're not saying that he gave up omniscience. He didn't cease to be God. He still had a divine nature. And with respect to his divine way of operating, he, could, he still knew everything. So how do we bring these two things together is very mysterious and would take more time than we have here to even begin to scratch the surface to consider. But we have to make very clear... And when we say things like um, uh, that um, as God, he's everywhere, you know, he's all present, uh, in the incarnation, we're not saying that he ceased to be all present as God. We say, yes, he continued to be all present as God, continued to possess that divine nature. But in addition to that divine way of acting, he now has a human way of acting. And a human way of acting is a human way of acting. And it has all of the features of a fully human nature. All the things that come. He's fully equipped as a human, having a human nature. He's fully equipped and can do everything that is part of what that human nature is about. Without ceasing to have possessed the divine nature. Without ceasing to uh, operate in, in the divine way. So both of those things are true of Jesus. And what we're doing is we're faced with the same kind of mystery that we face with the, the Trinity itself. Yes. You know, one God, three persons. And truly, that is a mystery that we, limited by our human experience and understanding, it's impossible for us to truly understand. Correct. And yeah. I, I don't know if it's the same thing for you, Mark, but one thing I found as a Catholic that I found that was different than when I was a Protestant, or at least a Presbyterian, is that when I was a Protestant, it seemed like the trajectory was to always end up on one side of an either-or conundrum. Yeah, for sure. Whereas a Catholic, I've, I have found that our Catholic tradition has encouraged us to recognize our human frailty and to be much more comfortable with the both-and. Yes. I, I think that you see this uh, similar kind of pulling in Catholicism, but you have a magisterium that can kind of bring us back. So if we're kind of inclining in one direction, that magisterium can bring us back. Inclining in the other direction, that magisterium can bring us back. What happens in other Christian uh, groups, uh, you know, that you incline in that in a certain direction, you go all that, you go all the way to that to that direction, and the people that don't like that or think it's wrong, and they split off and they yeah. go someplace else, you yeah. know, yeah. and you kind of have this this back and forth that, that really splinters Christian unity. And again, back to that magisterium and that tradition that help keep us balanced. All right, let's. Uh and as we mentioned, we could go on for a long time on the, on the theology of these beautiful passages. 
In verse 8, in being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Well, one point uh, we can make about this passage requires us to go back to, to verse 7 and an underscore point. We talk about um, the emptying. You know, God in his divine nature doesn't suffer. (laughs) God in his divine nature can't be put to death. God in his divine nature cannot become the object of, you know, human uh, attack. (laughs) So we see in, first of all, becoming human and all the things that are involved with being man, um, there are, there's an emptying of sort of that divine prerogative and that divine, uh, not freedom with respect to the divine nature, but the person of the Son in his divine nature is subject to none of those things. But once he takes upon himself a human nature, he sort of empties himself in a way from his exemption from those things and becomes subject to them, just like any other person with a with a human nature. He is subject to those things. So, And, of course, we know that he has subjected himself to that precisely so that he could be obedient. You know, it's the, it says that he's obedient unto death. He's obedient to the Father, carried out the Father's will, perfect obedience to the Father's plan. Now, we can't tell this from just this text. If we go back and look at some other texts, we had time to look at other texts, we could see that really what Jesus does, what the Son does in the Incarnation, He becomes man when he uh, allows his person, the person of the Son, to be subjected to all the things that come with being man, and not only with being man, but uh, dying on the cross. When he does this, he's fulfilling a pattern of his relationship with the Father from all eternity. Not that he's, you know, suffering and dying from all eternity in that sense, but that this perfect submission to the Father's will, doing, giving himself wholly over, completely over to the Father's will, that's not something that starts with the Incarnation or with the Passion and Death of Christ. That's something that's in the very inner life of God, in the very life of the Trinity. And so it shouldn't surprise us in a certain sense that when the Son... Uh, obeys the Father and becomes man, that he continues that pattern of perfect obedience to the Father. And, of course, he's going to carry out that pattern in a, in a sinful world, uh, in a world that's in rebellion against God. And so, inevitably, his desire and his decision to be perfectly obedient to the Father's will in a world that's at odds with God is going to put him at odds with that world, yeah. and it's going to result in his death, and that's what happens. He obeys, becoming man, he obeys in dying, and he obeys in dying the death on the cross. The element of the cross adds a third element, the element of uh, not only excruciating pain and suffering, but utter disgrace. And we know from our study of the Old Testament, the crucifixion, execution, uh, as a criminal, Christ was not a criminal, he was executed as a criminal, execution as a criminal,
animal was a sign of being accursed from God. Mm-hmm. So he takes on all of this uh, in his decision to be uh, to become man and his becoming man in his crucifixion. He takes on human nature, he takes on death, and he takes on public humiliation, shame, all the pain, everything that's associated with the crucifixion, which was a sign of, of divine judgment. We know ultimately, obviously, the, the Father is uh, loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, but this cross is a sign of being the accursed of God. And so all of this he does out of obedience to the Father, and in this perfect if we can use the expression divine humility. The divine humility is the divine, the gift of God in giving himself. And giving himself, certainly the Son gives himself over the Father. The Father is the worthy recipient of the Son. But he does it, uh, his love for the Father and the Father's love for us. The Father loves us. And so there's a, a sort of a divine humility in, in yeah. the Father electing to love us. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that, yes, God in his nature, never suffered, would not die, uh, uh, would not even need to be obedient, I mean, in essence. But the, the fact that it would lead to this uh, tells us something about what's at the nature of, of love itself, yes. that, that love the way God, from the very beginning before uh, we existed, that there was a part of that love was this, it's by nature sacrificial. And giving, giving. Of, yeah, and then we could develop Trinitarian theology here in talking about the, the Father uh, giving himself over, you know, to the Son in the, in the person of the Son. Uh, you know, that's a that's a, a self gift. I mean, there's not the suffering that we associated with associate with that kind of love in this world in the situation of sin. But nevertheless, there's that self donating love that the Father has for the Son, and the Son receives everything from the Father, you know, yeah. and in receiving everything the Father gives himself back to the Father and that self-surrendering love. And the Spirit is this mutual mutuality of self-surrendering and receiving love that we see in the inner, inner life of the Trinity. That carries itself on in the Incarnation. The Son comes in the world to carry out the Father's will uh, and, and to love those whom the Father has loved and to bring back to the Father those uh, whom the Father has given to the Son to bring back to the Father. And this all happens in the Holy Spirit. And so what happens when he gives himself on the cross? Well, in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in the heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's a humbling, mm-hmm. taking on the human form, and then there, and, and, and foregoing the divine prerogatives, and that humbling leads to the death on the cross, and then the Father is the one who bestows, again, that title of Lord to the, to the Son who's humbled himself. He, he, the Father vindicates the Son by acknowledging he is Lord. Now, this is a very important passage. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a passage that comes, it's actually a quote, sort of a paraphrase, the Old Testament, mm-hmm. Isaiah 45, verse 27. And that passage, the whole section of the book of the prophet Isaiah, is talking about 
the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh, and that there is only one God, and that he will share his glory with no one else. And uh, if we look at the passage, look at the text, very important because it points to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. He's divine, and that this this title which the Father bestows on him, he doesn't bestow it in the sense of somehow uh, saying something of Jesus that isn't true. He bestows it on him in the sense of acknowledging who he is as a result of his his emptying himself, his foregoing his divine prerogatives, and his obedience to the Father in the Incarnation. That's what it says in Isaiah 45, verse 23. It says, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone forth in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Now that's paraphrasing. I mean, this text is paraphrased there in Philippians chapter 2. The fascinating thing is, you go up to verse 22, the Lord God, Yahweh, says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. So when the Lord says, Every knee shall shall bow to me, every tongue shall, shall swear to me, I am the Lord, there is no other. And then earlier, I think it's over in Isaiah 42, I have to look up the the exact passage um, in Isaiah 42. Uh, oh, here it is. I found it. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other. Hmm. Well, what do we have here in Philippians chapter 2? We have the Father saying of the Son, calling the Son Lord, and saying, Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If Jesus isn't divine then that passage in Isaiah 42 has been compromised, has been mm-hmm. violated. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder that it's probably some, some of the early uh, uh, Jewish leaders who were not too excited about this sect that was lifting Jesus so high probably were offended by this hymn that Absolutely. Paul was, was uh, laying before them. Absolutely. Of course, it gives new meaning to the, the, the phrase that we see in First Corinthians when it says, Jesus Christ is Lord. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jesus is Lord, well, that has a twofold reference. First, it means, it's kind of subversive, because it it essentially means Caesar isn't. (laughs) He's not the Lord. I mean, he may be an earthly Lord, you know, and we know that the word Lord was sometimes used to, we'll say lowercase l, Lord, to earthly figures of authority. But the idea there was always, for, for, for a Jew or for a Christian, that that authority, that person exercise such that we could call him lowercase l lord meant that he was subordinate he was a created being he was not to be worshipped even in no way was he to be put in the same category as yahweh as as the lord god all right but when paul in first corinthians is jesus lord not only does that mean that caesar is not lord in that sense but it also means that jesus is lord jesus is yahweh jesus has that same authority that uh, and and power and divine claim that the god of the old testament has and that's that's revolutionary and i'm glad because not only does it mean we're not engaging in idolatry <laughs> it means that jesus has the the power to do what he says 
and that are following him, and we follow him, we're his disciples, we pattern, we think our thoughts after him, we, we trust in him, we trust in what he has said, that he will bring about what he said, and we love him above all things for his, for his sake, we are participating in the inner life of God, and God himself has vouchsafed it. God himself has underwritten it. And so I can be confident uh, of everything Jesus says because he's divine. And one other point, if Jesus can do it, I can do it, not because I'm anything in myself, but because Jesus is at work in me. So that means that Jesus has suffered and died on the cross and taken on himself the sins of the world. I mean, what, what can't I do? And this is, again, to echo Paul's line, I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. If Christ has done this, and Christ is God, and Christ has overcome all the sin and uh, death and suffering and so on, well, and Christ is at work in me, then what can't I take on? What suffering can't I endure? And that transforms the meaning of human suffering. Certainly, Christians don't shouldn't be masochists going out and trying to suffer for the sake of suffering, but we don't need to because suffering will come our way <laughs> no matter what. And the fact of the matter is, for, for the Christian who understands this passage in Philippians 2, who understands the, the tradition, the, the Church's tradition of it, it tells us that we can find uh, a deepening of our relationship with God, with the Father, in suffering, because we're conformed to the image of Christ. We enter more deeply into Jesus' divine sonship. It becomes our, uh, more deeply our own divine sonship, and we get taken up into the inner life of God. And so that's a, that's a profound element here. And for me, it really makes the passage come alive, because certainly it's about the Father and it's about the Son. It's also about me. Well, Mark, we have covered a lot of good stuff in this program. Amazing how much we've, in theology we've covered, but also explaining what it means to have this mind among ourselves and recognizing this the problem of grasping our own privileges, uh, you know, taking the, his model for us, but also he gives us the mind and the grace to be able to do this. If you said, we don't do it on our own, we do it on his grace. So, Mark, thank you for joining us on the program. Thank you. And again, I recognize, I recommend everyone to go to our website, deepinscripture.com, and you'll see the, the link for Ignatius Insight. And so you can check out the other things that Mark is doing, both with Ignatius Insight as well as Ignatius Press. Well, thank you, Mark, for joining us. And all of you, thank you for joining us. I hope this was encouragement to you. God bless you. We look forward to being with you again next week.